Get ready to sashay into an episode of Let's Get One Thing Straight, the series that fearlessly penetrates the layers of the queer experience. I'm Unc DC. I'm Javon. And we're here with our straight boy co-host, Aaron, and Coach Fred, and some amazing guests to spill the tea, throw some shade, and shit glitter all over the ever-evolving landscape of fabulousness. Get ready for laughs, love, and lots of faggotry. Allies, you're in for an education and a good time. So grab your rainbow flag, strike a pose, and let's go deeper, Daddy, into the queerest journey of your life. We're safe spaces and faces where we're rewriting the script and embracing every shade of the rainbow. Hey, what's up? What's good, y'all? It's Unc DC, and we are back with another episode of Let's Get One Thing Straight. And tonight we're going to have a conversation about the political arena of oppression and activism. So to facilitate that conversation, I have a good friend of mine, uh, Rashad Thomas, and I'll let him tell you a little bit about himself. Rashad, introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. My name is Rashad Thomas. Very happy to be joining you on the podcast. I am originally from Florida, but now I live in the DC metro area in Maryland um, and work in DC as a lobbyist. And I work on voting rights, democracy reform, anti-corruption, um, getting big money out of politics, those sorts of issues. It's been a, a fun and interesting journey to get to, to where I am today, but I'm really excited to be here to discuss um, the political aspects of being a part of the LGBTQ community. I think being queer is itself a politically revolutionary thing <laughs> in a lot of respects. So yeah, just really excited to, to delve into the conversation. What led your life into the direction of the political arena, into the direction of politics, political sciences? I've always been pretty interested in politics and uh, government and whatnot. I was raised by a single mother who was a state employee in Florida, and she was very, very politically interested in whatnot and passed that on to me. She taught me all about the you know, the civil rights movement and, and the activism that led to the liberation of African-Americans in the 1960s, both in the largest sense with like, you know, Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and, and the luminaries, but also even in my mother's own life, she was the first, she and my uncle, who was a year and a half older than her, they were the first black students at the elementary school in our town. They were in third and fourth grade in the mid 60s. So I was always really moved and, and impressed by the courage it must have taken to be, you know, nine years old. I have a niece who is in the third grade now, and I just can't imagine her walking into that sort of gauntlet. But my mother had to do that, you know, in like 1960 something. <laughs> it's really hard to fathom, but she really impressed on me how important it is to make your voice heard and and try to make a difference in the world. And I've just really taken that to heart. And I went to school to study politics and have many degrees and lots of student loan debt to go with it. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I call myself very mission driven now. So I'm lucky and blessed to be able to 
to work professionally doing what you know i really value and and what i see as being a contribution to making the world a better place uh where did you study my undergraduate degree was from florida agricultural and mechanical university famu um the only public hbcu in the state of florida and i'm a very proud famu alum and so i got a bachelor's degree in political science and then i have two master's degrees my first master's degree is in government from regent university in virginia beach virginia and then my second master's degree is in political communication from american university in washington dc and um i'm very gay but i'm also very religious and i did my master's thesis on the political movement of pat robertson it's like a overview of the evangelical political movement in the late 20th century so i have been working you know uh not not my current job but i have also worked at the intersection of faith and politics i worked for the episcopal church office of government relations as a lobbyist um as well working mostly on anti-poverty issues so faith and politics issues are also very uh, near and dear to my heart I really didn't realize that these different churches had lobbyists. I did. I, did, I really did not. Yeah, it's it's actually a very underreported element of the world of politics in D.C. I mean, most major denominations that are Christian, but then also even um, non-Christian groups like Jewish organizations, Muslim organizations, etc., have lobbying arms. They call them different things. They may work on different issues, um, but every major denomination you can think of has a something similar to uh, an office of government relations that works on advocacy before Congress. Some even have state level advocacy arms as well, and they they can be very influential depending upon who's in in power. The more conservative churches and organizations have more sway with the Republicans, and the more liberal ones have more sway with Democrats. But they're all there and they're all contributing to public policy. Surprisingly enough, the news media focuses a lot on evangelicals, of course, and their impact on electoral politics and who they're going to vote for. And, you know, they're a big part of the Republican Party space, but there's not as much focus on the ways that they really impact policy. When I was working for the Episcopal Church, one of the last things I helped accomplish was the Respect for Marriage Act which President Biden signed into law at the very end of 2022. And this legislation basically eliminates a federal definition of marriage, which had been in the law since 1996 when Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act, so-called. But that law had been overturned by the Supreme Court back in 2012 with the um, Edie Windsor versus United States decision. If you've never heard of Edie Windsor, I highly recommend you Google her, a lesbian pioneer. But um, the Defense of Marriage Act has not been in force for more than a decade now. But just in case the Supreme Court ever overturns same-sex marriage um, nationwide, the Respect for Marriage Act will require the federal government to recognize valid same-sex marriages for all the federal purposes of marriage so that you know service members who are married to same-sex spouses can have all the same benefits and whatnot. Social Security survivors can have benefits, all that sort of stuff. But also it requires that states recognize valid same-sex marriages performed in other states, regardless of whether or not that state 
performs same-sex marriages. So there are a lot of states that have currently invalid bans on same-sex marriage that were passed prior to the Obergefell decision in 2015. Georgia is one state that does. Idaho is another state that does. Right across the river from me in Virginia, they have an invalid ban on same-sex marriage. So if Obergefell is ever overturned, those bans, unless they're repealed, would go back into effect. So the Respect for Marriage Act now requires would require that in case that ever happens, Virginia and Georgia and Idaho would still have to recognize same-sex marriages that were performed in other states. My church, the Episcopal Church, and a whole wide range of other denominations, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Church of Christ, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, on and on and on. We signed a letter in support of the Respect for Marriage Act because we're all LGBTQ affirming denominations. We were joined, not in the, on that letter specifically, but we were joined in support of the Respect for Marriage Act by a very surprising ally, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, which most people probably would know that the LDS Church is very not in support of LGBTQ people, <laughs> generally speaking. But at least when it comes to the question of civil marriage, uh, the LDS Church was was supportive. And I think that was really key in helping a number of Republicans end up voting for the law. And it, and it was a bipartisan vote in support of the legislation. The diversity, people often don't recognize that there's a diversity of institutional views when it comes to LGBTQ people, when it comes to churches and religious denominations, et cetera. There are lots of queer affirming churches in the United States, both in congregations on the ground level and nationally at the institutional level. And I'm really glad that we have that protection. I think that's that's very uh, critical, especially, honestly, after the overturn of Roe v. Wade, anything right. is possible. So it's good that we have that um, that safety net, if you yeah. will. Really quick, uh, Rashad, help us a little bit, especially for those of us that might be listening and just haven't taken the time to completely understand our political system. Why is it important to understand the political system and how it impacts our rights as a queer community? Absolutely. Well, I said earlier that that being queer is a political act, and we recognize that as queer people that it's a revolutionary thing for us to be queer, but our opponents also recognize that. And they have all throughout modern history <laughs> As long as the queer liberation movement has been active and vocal and advocating for our humanity to be and our rights to be recognized in law, we have had opposition that has wanted to push back on that in a wide variety of ways, whether it be not allowing us to, of course, get married and and not allowing us to have protections from discrimination in in other ways, even just the the basic question of whether or not same-sex consensual sexual activity is legal. Until the year 2003, there were several dozen states that made it a crime punishable by imprisonment to gay people to engage in consensual sex. Um, that was not overturned until the Lawrence v. Texas decision just two decades ago. The law has now and has always had a huge impact on the quality of life and the the ability of of LGBTQ people to navigate just existing in this country. 
you know, we've had a lot of progress over the course of the last half century or so in terms of queer liberation. And we should definitely celebrate that progress from the Obergefell decision legalizing same-sex marriage throughout the country. Many states have implemented anti-discrimination laws to protect queer people as we navigate life in every aspect of life, you know, whether it be from protection from discrimination in housing, protection from discrimination in employment, in accessing credit, in healthcare, runs the gamut. But there are a lot of states where that is not the reality. It is still 100% legal to discriminate against LGBTQ people in these very everyday activities. It, it's kind of a, I've, I've long said this, that it's, it's really a cruel irony that the day after the Obergefell decision was decided back in 2015, a gay couple could go to the courthouse or to their church or wherever and get married on a Saturday and get fired or evicted or whatever on a Monday. And, you know, the fact that we have same-sex marriage throughout the country, I think is hugely important. There are obviously, you know, hundreds of thousands of same-sex couples who are enjoying the benefits of legal same-sex marriage from sea to shining sea. I would never say that that's a bad thing in any way, shape, or form. The only problem is that it kind of distracts us from an issue that is, in my view, just as important and really impacts many more queer people than marriage because they're, I would venture to guess that there are many, many more queer people who are not married than there are queer people who are married. Um, so having protection in the, the exercise of our everyday lives in terms of being discriminated against when we try to access services in the marketplace, when we try to access housing, when we try to access credit, when we try to access healthcare, when we try to access employment, those things are really a lot more important or at least as important as being able to access the benefits of civil marriage, in my view. We've seen a lot of backsliding in that respect in a lot of places in this country in the last several years. Um, a lot of it has been targeted at the trans community because of their particular vulnerabilities, but it's really just a, the trans community is just the canary in the coal mine because a lot of states are are trying to find new and terrible ways to discriminate against LGBTQ people in the education system, saying that, you know, prohibiting teachers from even raising us as a, a topic, you know, as if there aren't queer children in schools and there aren't children who have queer parents in schools, you know, it, it's just madness. Not to mention queer teachers themselves. Like, it's just like, how do you, how do you expect society to run without queer people? Because we're, we're definitely here, but also the Supreme Court as well, not just state governments, but the Supreme Court has been coming for us as well. Last summer, they they held in a in a case that it was okay for a a woman who had a photography or not a photography business, a, a website design business, to discriminate against same sex couples who come to her and ask them to design their wedding website, which is um, problematic for a number of reasons. Least of all, because she'd never even been approached by a same-sex couple to have her design their website. Usually, with, with Supreme Court cases, you actually have to suffer supposed harm in order for them to take the case. The fact that they, the Supreme Court took this case 
and ruled in the woman's favor shows that they're chomping at the bit to roll back rights for queer people. I think that's really what we can take from this. And I really don't believe if, if the Obergefell decision were to come to before the Supreme Court today, that we would get the same decision just because the, the makeup of the court has shifted much further to the right. Being vigilant about these issues and fighting back and trying to, you know, raise the alarm, vote for candidates who support queer equality and raise your voice in your community. It, it's super important for our own freedom and for the freedom of so many other people who may not have the understanding of all of these, the particulars of all these issues, but still nonetheless have the right to live a life of freedom and dignity and happiness in the United States of America. One of the things that, that you mentioned, you, you talked about the last half century or so, and what stands out to me the most about that period of time is that not only do we see about 50, 55 years since, since Stonewall, but can you tell me, Rashad, roughly 50 years ago now is whenever the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from their, their diagnostic as a mental disorder. But it wasn't until 1992 when the World Health Organization declassified homosexuality as a mental disorder. How has that perspective of homosexuality, or as being queer, the queer experience, how has that perspective, how has it affected the political landscape? And has that declassification been reflected in policy since then? Yes, I think that those declassifications have played a huge role in the progress that we've made over the last half century. I feel like medicine and science is sometimes way ahead of society and culture in a lot of respects, because when it comes to medicine and science, ideally they're employing the scientific method and, you know, trying to use empirical methods of inquiry to come to conclusions about medical stuff, basically. <laughs> so when it's not based upon religion or morals or culture, just based upon cold, hard scientific facts, you can make tremendous leaps that the rest of society would not wear as, as readily as, as, as the scientific community might. And I think that the scientific community has certainly shown a lot of really compelling evidence that has been persuasive to the general public, to lawmakers, et cetera, that homosexuality is not a mental disorder. It's a very normal part of human biology and animal biology in general. Human beings are animals, scientifically speaking, and other animals also have same-sex partnerships and sexual desires, et cetera. It's not a matter of a pathology or something that needs to be cured or discouraged, et cetera. It's just, it's just a natural part of how some human beings are wired. And that scientific perspective probably was held by maybe one in 10 Americans in 1972, being generous, I would say. Uh, and nowadays it's held by probably 60 or 70% of Americans. So that's absolutely progress. But I think when you see how those non-scientific views negatively influenced public policymakers even during the last 50 years at, at certain points, especially in response to the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, the fact that we didn't have the concentrated focus on saving lives that we should have had in the 80s, 
I think was largely because the, the AIDS virus was targeting gay men. It really wasn't until a, a white little boy from Indiana in the late eighties, Ryan White got HIV through a blood transfusion that the disease got the funding and the research money and the public health attention that it needed in order to get to the, to the place where we got in the mid nineties with effective antiretrovirals. And I think the fact that, you know, the, the legislation that finances all of the domestic U.S. AIDS uh, programs, which is, it's it literally called the Ryan White. The Ryan White program. Yeah. That's where I received my funding for right. my medication and my health care. Anything that pertains to HIV and AIDS, the Ryan White yeah. Foundation. Right. And so obviously my heart breaks for Ryan White and his family and the fact that he did die from AIDS as a teenager. Truly, truly terrible, obviously. But, you know, countless gay men had died from from AIDS before Ryan White was even heard of. But but that sh that goes to show you that how how rife we were, the country was with homophobia in the halls of public policy, you know, the 1980s, long after homosexuality had been declassified as a mental disorder. So yeah, I think that, but, but now obviously things are a lot better. Thank goodness, at least in that respect, I think we still, we still do face both nationally and in a lot of states a, a continuing perception that there is something abnormal about being gay. Well, look, look, Rashad, look at our, Fred, you were just talking about our comments on our posts. I don't know if you had a chance to see them, Rashad. I know I'd mentioned them to you, but most of it is, and Fred, you can, you can vouch for most of it is, um, one of them was like, everything after LGB is a mental disorder or, or I miss the good old days when it was just lesbians and gays or, you know, and it was, all of it was just targeted at it being a mental disorder. I mean, oh, very concentrated. All vile. I'm talking the, the, the kind of hatred that people feel comfortable spewing towards people that they don't know or something that they may not understand. And the very sad part about it is our posts are really informative. It's a conversation. If you're welcome, you're welcome to join the conversation as long as you're welcome to have an open mind. But a lot of these people, and I'm, I'm a straight dude, they, they offend me, piss me off that people are okay with being that. And, and what's even worse, they willing to put their face and their name to it, bro. Like that is just sad. It's yeah. sad. And if you're like that and you're listening to this and you don't like it, cool, cool. Listen, I believe in Jesus. If you if you worship Satan, I'm not going to say you go to hell. I'm like, hey, do your thing, bro. Like, we all have to live on this planet. And the problem with those comments where they're coming from extreme insecurity. What you so insecure about? What are you so fearful about? How come you're unwilling to open your mind up to what you don't know? You got to open your mind up to there's some stuff that you just don't know. And it's okay. That kind of hatred is perpetuated. And as a straight male, that, it, that offended me to see that, that people would go to that extent. And then those same people will say, well, look, see, the statistics show that there's mental disorder. Of course there is. People that are in the immunity are constantly being bombarded with this shit 
I want people to understand this. I want to make this very clear. This is a Facebook post that was put on a public forum. If people are comfortable doing this shit in a public forum, what the fuck do you think is going on privately? Mm-hmm. So now whoever is, is in this community is going home and dealing with this privately. Privately, man. That means they are getting attacked from the time they wake up, walk out the house, just being themselves. Whether it's queer, gay, left, whatever you want to be. They get in the stairs. People are talking about them. They're on Facebook. They hear. Th- they can't hide from this. And they can't change who they are, regardless of what we want to say from a straight community of how we think, quote unquote, they should be. To see that kind of vile coming from humans. And these humans, let's be, let's be clear. These are some people that say, oh, I believe in the Lord Jesus. I, I believe in Jesus and that he should save everybody. And then they're the same ones that are doing that. Or I'm a good person. I believe that people should have good lives. And then they shit on people like that because they simply do not, they're not in line with their views. If you are that kind of person, you need to check yourself, man. You need to check yourself. You need to understand that people are humans. And even though they don't have a viewpoint that you have, you still have to coexist with them on this planet, regardless of how you feel about them. Because see, these people will say they love you and like you until you you do something that they feel is not right. And that is the test of what kind of true human are you? Do you love me regardless of what you think about me and what my viewpoints are? Or do you love me so long as I go along with what you believe? And that's what this whole thing about the LGBTQ is all about, is that it's not just one viewpoint. That's I had to understand that myself with the binary and all that. It's not just that. There's other elements that we need to look at. And it's really okay. The world is not going to end. And this shit has been here since the beginning of time. It's just that certain history has only been programmed to us in a certain way. And people just aren't willing. They're not willing to part with that. They're not willing to understand. You've been only given a little bit of history. And there's all this shit that you still have to learn. And because it's very hard for you to learn this new shit. (laughs) It's very hard for you to understand new shit. So I'm done. But that's what I got. You know, you know what? And to connect the pieces of the conversation here, Fred, you're absolutely right. We face this kind of hatred. And this is just a Facebook post. But imagine, if you will, it's 1980, whatever. You're a gay man. You're diagnosed with HIV. And then you're you're not only faced with, oh, my God, look at this faggot. But and but he's diseased, too. Mm hmm. So I'm glad that you made that point, because just to add that extra perspective to that, you think it's hard now where we have more inclusive and open spaces. Imagine how hard it was then not to have government support, right? No government support alone. They don't even know, like at this point, science, the research isn't being done. We're just assuming we can't, we can't touch you. Yeah. You know? So Rashad, tell me. Specifically throughout the 80s and 90s, how could administrative policy, executive action, what have you, how could something have contributed to saving lives of specifically of queer individuals during the height of the epidemic? Yeah. Well, if we had had a a government that recognized that an illness is not a, a punishment for your sins or a condemnation of your lifestyle, quote unquote, or any of that sort of stuff, we could have marshaled 
the resources of our government to put in the the research and the the manpower needed to protect LGBT people from HIV, and then also to um, to research ways to to stop the disease much sooner than we actually did. I compare it to the our most recent experience of a of a strange new disease that we didn't really know much about and how it was transmitted and, you know, uh, all that sort of stuff, which was COVID. I mean, when COVID came on the scene, it, it reminded me, honestly, of that the first first people who were diagnosed with HIV in the United States in the late 70s. It was like, where is this coming from? We have no idea. You know, this is not a disease. Although HIV um, has, ex it, it was it mutated from a monkey in the Congo in the early 1920s, if I'm not mistaken, but it would it had been localized until, you know, many decades later. And then it came and became the epidemic that it did, eventually became in the um, late 70s, early 80s. So it's a little different from COVID in that regard. But the difference between the way we had a, not just a whole of government, but a whole of society approach to tackling COVID and we got a, a vaccine for COVID within a year of the disease first appearing. Compare that to, you know, to HIV, where it took, you know, the better part of 20 years for us to get effective antiretrovirals. Obviously, we don't have a cure for HIV yet, but, but we have effective antiretrovirals. That didn't come until the mid-90s. They're working on HIV vaccines now, but we don't have a widely marketable vaccine for HIV either. You know, now we're 40 years into the HIV epidemic and we still don't have a vaccine for it. The, the lack of compassionate public policy and whole of government mobilization that we saw from the Reagan administration in the 1980s really set the campaign to tackle this disease back by decades, to be perfectly honest. And Ronald Reagan didn't even acknowledged the disease until one of his Hollywood buddies who people kind of suspected was gay, but did wasn't confirmed that he was gay until he was, was dying from HIV, Rock Hudson. Um, until Rock Hudson got it, Reagan didn't even acknowledge that the disease existed. And he was already well into his second term when that, that occurred because Rock Hudson died in 1986. This would be like COVID only happening to black people. This would be like COVID happening to only black people and then black people are uh, and then people ostracizing black people and being like there's something wrong with them yep exactly there's nothing wrong and there's no vaccine they're not coming out with no vaccine they just saying there's something wrong with them people get stay away from no people we remember how people were acting with covid right i want people to understand that imagine that covid only happened to black people and people being like it's something wrong with them there's something wrong with that black people stay away from them and then nobody coming out with a vaccine, even in 2024, and they still saying, there's something wrong with them. I want people to understand that is basically what was happening in the 80s, was that here was a group of people that were getting the, the HIV and they were getting AIDS, but they were like, no, 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 they, they got to be something wrong with them. They ain't got nothing to do with us. Just stay away from them. <laughs> and they just let it go. Now, imagine COVID was only happening to black people. And then all of a sudden, one white dude got it. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, wait, whoa, whoa. Can, can I add some depth to that conversation? Not only are they like, oh, something's wrong with you because you're black, you have COVID, but that's from God. That and is you your punishment for being black. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
until the white man got it. Now we're going to now we're going to develop a vaccine. So I just want to add that perspective because it wasn't just something's wrong with you and you've got this disease, but now you deserve it and it's of God. Mm-hmm. Because it was that position that con- was a contribution to the lack of government intervention. I want people that are listening to this to understand is I came up with that scenario because then what ends up happening is people start looking at the the lifestyles of black people. What are they doing differently? It must be something they're doing wrong. We're going to punish them. And then they contrast it with what everybody else is doing and trying to make that normal. No, nah, this is normal. We don't do all that. We don't eat chicken. We don't eat the collard green. There's something wrong with them. They are, must be condemned. That's what they were doing to gay people. They were saying, oh, see, see, see. See, they're having sex with each other. See, they got HIV. There's something wrong with them. Don't touch them. Don't let them get near you. And then all of a sudden, Ryan White, this kid, all of a sudden something happens. Oh, shit. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Now they got to they gotta moonwalk back from their story. Yeah. So now the narrative opens up to where now it's like, oh, it's not just sex. Now, And this is what I mean by people got to open up their mind. I want them to understand the struggles that those people really had to go through. And even for some of the straight people to understand that this stuff doesn't just happen in a vacuum and only happens to a certain group of people. And praise God, you're not a part of that group. That's not how this works, man. That's not how it works. So if you have that mentality, I I need you to open up your mind to what is actually happening. Yeah. And I think this just speaks to the danger of otherizing anyone just because it's happening to someone who is not like you that you can just not care is despicable. Everybody has value. Everybody has worth. Everybody has dignity. And everybody deserves to have their government care about them, the, their society to care about them, the healthcare system to care about them. It's not, a, it's not a matter of, you know, oh, just because it's not my people or people like me that it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Most of all, because it could be you. No disease cares about your political views, your race, your sexuality, where you live, how much money you have. All it cares about is reproducing and getting to the next host. All those factors that people use to, in their minds, make themselves feel like they're better than somebody else. The HIV virus does not care about any of that. So if only because, you know, the disease could affect you, you have to care about um, what, how things affect other people. Absolutely. And I want to also stress that we don't just need this comprehensive conversation at a federal level around protections, not just with HIV awareness or with HIV intervention, but just in general, Rashad. How is the queer experience impacted at the state level, not just with comprehensive healthcare or or HIV awareness or or what have you, but just in the daily lives of of queer individuals? Um, what is that impact? What does that look like? Yeah, state states and localities play a really major role in the experience of LGBTQ people in their everyday lives. Your state government is the one that regulates and, and determines your school curriculum. And, and we recently had all of these moves to ban books with queer 
characters and and um, prohibit discussions of LGBTQ topics in public schools, for instance, that's all your state government. The federal government doesn't really have any role in in that sort of thing. And also when it comes to anti-discrimination laws more generally, the federal government, you know, we have the House and the Senate and the president. There are lots of roadblocks, unfortunately, to passing comprehensive anti-discrimination legislation, as I well know, because I worked on it for several years um, when I worked for the Episcopal Church trying to pass the Equality Act at the federal level that has gone nowhere, sadly, because of the, the divided nature of our Congress. But you can pass these laws at the state level much more easily. You know, the experience in a state like where I live, which is Maryland, where we are a very progressive state. We were one of the the first states to legalize same-sex marriage through a statewide referendum back in 2012. We have the full range of anti-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people. We have trans health equity in our state laws. So, you know, if a trans person is on Medicaid, they can access all the care that they need. So, you know, our experience here in Maryland is very different from the experience in a state like Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia, where the state government is controlled by people who are 100% opposed to LGBTQ equality, would ban same-sex marriage tomorrow if the Supreme right. Court let you, you know, who really want to erase queer people from the public square and in any sort of sphere in which we could assert our humanity, they want to push back on it. Young people are, I, I feel like, you know, the whole it gets better thing, that campaign that that has been going on for many years uh, to tell LGBTQ youth that life may suck while you're a kid, but one day you'll be out of your parents' house and you can live a free life and all that sort of thing, which is, I think, very true in a lot of respects. But I really think we need to focus on making life better while queer kids are kids. Okay. Mm, right. But as a queer person should not be a torture chamber. Right. And for so many queer kids growing up in anti-queer homes, attending schools where they're bullied mercilessly by their classmates, and, in, in, and because of these gag laws that exist in states like Florida, their teachers can't even say anything about it. Right. They're intentionally taking queer people, queer subjects out of the curriculum and not just taking it out of, of the curriculum, taking it even out of the library. So mm-hmm. you know, even, if, even if a book is not assigned in your class, you could at least go to the library and read about queer people or queer characters, et cetera, um, in fiction books. But that's, that's outlawed now. That's not even mentioning the even more direct challenges that trans youth face in many states where they are not only banning care for trans youth, but in some states, they're also moving to essentially declare that that trans-affirming parents are child abusers and that they could take their trans children away from them. These challenges are all state-based. There's not really a thing in the world that the federal government can do about them because of our, our system. These sort of family and, and uh, public education policies, et cetera, they're all state-based policies. So who you elect to your governor's mansion to your state house of representatives, your state senators, 
your mayor, your school board, county school board or city school board, whatever, those people are the ones who are making these sorts of policies. And unfortunately, because of the way our news news system works, they're the ones who get the least amount of press scrutiny in a lot of respects. And as a result, most people have no idea of what's going on in their state capital that affects these issues. Not only are those people the ones who have the biggest impact on those education and, and those sorts of issues, but it's a lot easier to have an impact as an advocate trying to push back against those policies at the state level because it's easier to pass laws at the state level than it is at the federal level. So if you engage in the activism at the state level and try to make your voice heard there, you have a better chance of success a lot of the times. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of state government, state legislatures are gerrymandered out of the wazoo and um, it's hard to defeat a lot of really bad candidates. <laughs> unfortunately, we have a lot of problems in our democracy. We can't lose focus that your state government is where a lot of this action is. And particularly, you know, I, I feel very strongly about improving life for queer youth. I, it, it's really egregious to me the way that many anti-gay people have turned this issue around that like the kids who aren't gay are the ones who are being harmed by learning about the existence of queer people. What planet are these? Are you li I mean, obviously no one wants second graders to, to learn about explicit sexual, anything gay, straight or otherwise, that's not what we're talking about, but it is not inappropriate to tell a child that there are people out there who love people of the same sex. You know, I'm, I'm going to interject and let me tell you why. Because they sensationalize it, I think, a lot of times in their arguments. Oh, they're going to teach our kids about um, anal penetration in the first grade or we're going to talk about, you know, uh, you know, felching at, in third grade or that's. But I think they do that because they know whenever they're they pitch an extreme platform that they can get more people to gravitate to it and and grab onto that sensationalized argument but let me tell you what i believe the root of it is language is power whenever you remove access to language and i've said this before you disenfranchise disempower disembody the spirit of a person because without that language even if that exists inside of you, you don't know what the hell to call it. You don't know how to describe it. And it's not that reading a book about two gay boys makes you gay, but whenever you can see it, you have it represented, and then you have access to that language, it empowers you. Mm -hmm. So by stripping that access to that language, I think that is what the core issue is. You're absolutely right. And not only does it empower you, it also makes you more compassionate and tolerant you know which honestly i think is ultimately the goal is to form a, a generation that will be less tolerant and less compassionate by um, making these issues taboo because that's really i mean really all the work that the, the lgbtq liberation movement has been doing over the last half century has been certainly to increase compassion and tolerance, but it's also been to, I mean, to go back to the conversation about the, the declassification of homosexuality as a, a mental disorder, it's been to tear down the structures that have made homosexuality 
taboo in Western culture for centuries. <laughs> and obviously those barriers are not going to be torn down overnight, but we are seeing a concerted backlash to our effort to take the taboo off of being gay, being a lesbian, being trans, et cetera, um, to, to roll back the clock back to a time when it was taboo because there are people who just, for whatever reason, be it religious or cultural or whatever, their, their view of the world is so challenged and disquieted and discomforted by the notion that there are happy, healthy gay people who are not sad or afraid or crouching in the closet and um, have the, the audacity to live their lives with integrity and openness and freedom and love. They want us to go back to a 1950s Ozzy and Harriet world that really never existed anywhere but on Ozzy and Harriet, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> right. The vision of um, a leave it to beaver type of society is what these quote unquote family values people want to bring back. It's obviously based on a fabrication and a falsehood, but that nostalgia has real power for people. I think the best way to combat that, I think I have the, the ways that I think would be good to combat it, the ways that I try to combat it, certainly. I don't know what's the best way, but but I think the best way to combat it is just for queer people to live our truth and live it out loud and do not be uh, accommodating anybody's homophobia. Easier said than done. There are a lot of people, you know, you have to have relationships with your uncle or your cousin or your coworker or whoever who might be uncomfortable with homosexuality. Um, navigating that, of course, can be very challenging and difficult. But life is way too short, in my view, to entertain the foolishness. My personal policy is that if I don't have to have a relationship with somebody that I know is homophobic, I don't. If you can't accept me for who I am, then that you're not someone I want in my life. And that goes for family, friends, anyone. And you know, that's a that's a boundary that um that I've had to create in my life too. And I don't just mean simple differences, but when you intrinsically do not respect who I am to my core, mm -hmm. there's a problem. So absolutely. Yeah. I want to talk about because we we have made tremendous progress as a community. I really want to talk about some areas of queer life where we need more protection, where we need more policy, where we need more legislation. One thing that we've talked about, and I think you would agree, are those non-discrimination laws. Moving forward, what would you personally like to see at state levels nationwide and at the federal level as well to build upon the little bit of protection that they've already quote unquote protection that they've given us. Well, I think comparing it to the, the primary victories of the civil rights movement back in the 1960s, the things that we got from civil rights movement were of course the voting rights act that gave African-Americans voting rights throughout the country. Not as much of an issue with queer people that they've never really tried to stop us from voting for being queer. So that's not as much of an issue. But to me, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the template. 
I want all the protections that we get for people of color, for being disabled, for being from a foreign country, you know, all the, you know, the, the, you cannot discriminate on the basis of race, sex, nation of origin, immigration status, disability. I want all those protections for being for sexual orientation and gender identity. You should not be able, and this is not just, of course, I, I mean, I've, I've mentioned housing, healthcare, employment, et cetera. Yes. But I think in public accommodations as well, I don't think, I don't think this happens very often, but in theory, it is legal in many states in this country, in any sort of business setting to turn away gay customers. If you see two men come into your shop or your restaurant holding hands and you oppose homosexuality, in many states, you have every right to refuse them service. And that just rubs me the wrong way, man. I just think that is disgusting. And um, not only is it disgusting, it it sort of gums up the works of the free commerce in our society. I mean, in what other instance would we allow business owners to just make judgments about patrons and then be able to turn them out? We certainly don't allow it in terms of race. That is illegal. So why should we allow it in terms of sexual orientation? There have been a lot of arguments put forward by people on the right using the First Amendment free speech as a grounds to, and also the um, free exercise of religion as grounds to push back against these laws. And states like Colorado, for instance, it seems like Colorado has gotten a lot of flack for this. Colorado has had two lawsuits that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court, rolling back their very strong protections for um, queer people. The notion that in the marketplace, you can discriminate if it's if you if you have a religious reason for discriminating, that's a, a loophole you could drive a Mack truck through, honestly. Because if it, if it if it if today it's gay people, why tomorrow couldn't it be interracial an interracial couple or anyone else? I mean, really, literally anyone else. Business owners should not be allowed to make moral judgments about their customers when they decide whether or not they're going to serve them. You should just serve whoever. If you if you want to be open to the public, you should serve everybody who comes. The public. To, in the public, absolutely, absolutely, right. and and we know all this from the the pre nineteen sixty four South with segregation and Jim Crow. Separate but equal isn't isn't is not equal in the uh, marketplace. It makes whoever is the person to be separated. It sends a message that they are not equal. So I think that my most urgent priority <laughs> is getting. Sexual orientation and gender identity added to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that's what the Equality Act is at the federal level. But in the interim, you know, as many states as can do this, man, that's really, really important. Really, really important. And then also, I think, pushing back against these efforts to stigmatize LGBTQ people in the public education system and absolutely protecting trans youth that has got to be the top priority it does and you know and this this is my soapbox i guess you could say this is this is something that's near to my heart um not just protecting trans youth but there's this 
there's something that's been happening for a long time called conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. The reason why it's so near and dear to my heart is because when I was outed by the church, I was told, you know, you either go to, and actually it was, you either go to Exodus International. Oh, yikes. Or you're no longer a part of this church. And ironically, the leader of Exodus International came out and said, the whole thing is fake and I'm still gay. But anyway, there's a documentary called Pray Away. It's about ex-leaders and uh, survivors of conversion therapy. And what that is, it's just reuniting them together and they speak out about its harm to the queer community. So to really get into what conversion therapy is, I would say go watch Pray Away. I wanted to throw some numbers out here. There are 19 states with absolutely no law or policy whatsoever around conversion therapy. There are actually one, two, three, four states that only have a partial ban for minors. And then all the rest of the states ban conversion therapy for minors only, and they call that protecting people, but it doesn't. And the reason why I bring this up now is because you talk about protecting trans youth or protecting queer youth. We've funneled a lot of kids through conversion therapy. From your perspective, what is the next step? What do we need to do? Yeah, we definitely need to ban conversion therapy, period. Not just for for young people, but for everyone, because it it is quackery. It's not scientifically based. All the the reputable uh, psychological organizations out there would say this, that this is actively harming the mental health of the people who go through this and not not just the mental health. I mean, the the methods that some of these conversion therapy programs use can be harmful to the physical health of the people who are, are going through them as well. So I think we definitely need to to ban conversion therapy. This, I think, is one of those issues that has sort of slipped down the, the ladder of preferment over the last few years because there have been a lot of high profile bans on conversion therapy in a lot of major states and whatnot. Um, you really don't hear as much about it in the the news and in the the media these days, really. And and also the fact that Exodus International, which was the, one of the largest outfits that was involved in this type of work, has shut down. So there have been a lot of real victories in terms of discrediting conversion therapy and um, limiting its reach in recent years. So that's been definitely been progress, but the few places where it's still a problem, it it should be confronted for sure. It, it is not, you know, there's no scientific evidence to support the claim that you can change someone's sexual orientation. And, and, you know, there, there are of course lots of people, not lots of people, but there are people out there who are part of conservative religious organizations and choose to whatever remains celibate or, I mean, there are even some who decide to enter into mixed orientation marriages and that's just a whole nother wild thing. Um, but even I think among a lot of conservative religious people, the acknowledgement that trying to turn a gay person into a straight person is really not possible. So a lot of those folks will just say that, you know, I, I'm, I still have quote, I have still have same sex attractions, but I don't, act on them or whatever by either remaining celibate or indeed marrying a person of the opposite sex, uh, which can't, it's just 
really a terrible idea. They have a very high divorce rate. There's, there's mental health problems that come from that for sure. Uh, uh, but conversion therapy, I think has fallen off the, the, the agenda quite a bit, but wherever it is in the country, we should definitely try to outlaw it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, one of the reasons why I wanted to highlight it, just like you said, it's something that's kind of fallen through the cracks. You don't hear about it. We don't talk about it as much. And we really need to raise that awareness because this still happens. And, and, and here's the problem I have with it. A lot of times people are like, okay, well, it's it's banned for anyone under 18. So if you're over 18 and you're going, you're going in your own free will. Yeah, that's what they might say, but that's not how that works. Right. Many times it's like my situation and you are pressured. Mm-hmm. You want to be accepted and you go at risk of your own mental health. Mm -hmm. I agree with you 100%. We need to work actively. And I think we need to reintroduce this to our nuanced conversations Mm -hmm. um, and and really get back on this conversation to highlight what's happening. Uh, One of the other areas I, I think is just really important uh, criminal justice reforms. You know, in 2019, there were 4,930 hate crimes reported. 1,100, almost 1,200 of those were motivated by sexual orientation bias. But know that underreporting is real. Half of the hate crimes go underreported. So you could at least double those numbers, statistically speaking. But 61% of those hate crimes uh, that were motivated by sexual orientation bias uh, were anti, um, anti-gay anti bias. But I want to make it a point to point out that of all of the hate crimes, those that were homicides were largely all transgender women, mostly transgender women of color. Mm. So Rashad, what do we need to do to protect our community from hate crimes moving forward. Yeah, that's, you know, I hadn't heard the the stats in a while. So it's really important that we reflect on, on those numbers. We think about some of the prominent cases in the past, like Matthew Shepard back in the late nineties, who was a, a gay man who was, who was murdered for being gay in Wyoming. But these days you don't really hear very frequently uh, about gay men being set upon and, and killed for being gay. Yeah, there's there's definitely hate crimes that are perpetuated against um, gay men and, and lesbians, et cetera, but not really people killing them for killing us for being for being gay. But trans women, absolutely. It is sadly way too common that we hear about trans women who are murdered. Our criminal justice system has a lot of flaws. Unfortunately, you know, of course there's bias in all aspects of our society, but there's also bias in the criminal justice system and the way that prosecutors approach these cases when the victim is from a disenfranchised community. And I don't think there's any community that is more disenfranchised in our society than trans women of color. The way that they approach these issues when when the victim is of that profile is markedly different from when the victim is of another race or gender identity or um, sexual orientation. 
So we need to implement policies that correct for that, that challenge those biases, that put resources into solving those crimes and making justice swift and sure for those who harm trans women of color and harm any LGBTQ person. Additionally, one of the things that has been a big focus in recent years is removing the so-called gay trans panic defense. I recently watched a couple Sundays ago the the assassination of Johnny Versace on F well on Hulu, but it was on FX about six years ago. And in one of the episodes, it shows a, a man who violently killed a, a gay man who he thought was about to kiss him up until very recently in many states, you could use the, the notion that you were so out of your mind when you thought a gay person was about to kiss you or a gay person was coming on to you or whatever as a defense in court um, and get off from, from killing gay and lesbian and trans people as a result. There's been a big movement in recent years to repeal those laws and, and a good number of states have done so. Um, and I think that that is a, a really positive step that should be emulated across the country. Um, I don't know off the top of my head exactly which states have, have repealed it and which states haven't, but um, that information can easily be found online. That's, a, that's one thing that I think really is essential because it adds insult injury that someone can kill a gay person in some states and use the fact of that person's, that victim's sexuality as an excuse and the law abides that. But the criminal justice system in a whole host of other areas as well, we have big problems in, in some states with trans inmates being placed in sex segregated prison settings, not with their, their gender identity, but with their, um, their sex assigned at birth. So you have trans women being put into all male prisons. And that's also, um, can be very dangerous for their safety in and in so many respects the insidiousness of these attacks on trans people is another thing that we really have to discuss the the argument that is often put forward is that trans women are predators against cis women in settings in which they are together in intimate quarters like like bathrooms or in indeed in prisons or in in battered women's shelters and those sorts of things. Nothing could be further from the truth. Trans women are some of the most attacked, put upon people in our society. They're the ones who are at a higher risk of being victimized and who need the protection of the law. It's really insidious that the fact that they are at such a high risk of being victimized is turned around on them they're made out to be the ones who are um, threatening other people when it's almost never the case. It's almost always the other way around. Trans women are trying to live their happy lives and hateful people are attacking them and killing them as a result. But our community has always been gaslit, right? That's, that, oh, yeah. that's, a, that's, that's, that's what a they do. Private gaslit. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's a sign of an abuser, isn't it? D victimizing themselves, making you the abuser. 
I mean, it's perpetual. We talk about it in relationships. Why don't we talk about it as far as societal perspectives are concerned? 100%. 100%. So tell me, um, you know, we talk about these areas where we need to see improvement. We talk about uh, protections for our community, for trans uh, individuals. We talk about criminal justice reforms. We talk about all of this. But speak to the heart of the individual, whether they be ally or a part of the community. Uh, but speak to the heart of the individual who wants to know how to become more involved and not have their voice get lost in the in the over-sensationalized uh, projection that we see in the media, but actually make a difference uh, in their day-to-day lives. Uh, what What does that kind of activism look like? Well, I would recommend that folks connect with if they want to be active at the national level, some of the the national LGBTQ equality advocacy organizations like the Human Rights Campaign, um, the Trevor Project, the Congressional Equality Caucus, Equality PAC, which supports LGBTQ candidates for office. There are a lot of really great organizations out there that are doing tremendous work to keep these issues at the forefront of the national conversation and are working in Washington um, and throughout the country to advance LGBTQ equality, both in federal policy, in Congress, in the courts, and at the state level as well. So connecting with those organizations, getting on their mailing lists, following them on social media, Those are really great ways to remain informed about what's going on at the national level and ways that you can be involved. All those organizations have advocacy centers and actions that you can take to make your voice heard. And then at the local level, I would encourage folks to connect with local organizations that are engaging in advocacy and activism um, at the state level and in their communities. There are plenty of organizations and groups of people who are organized and coordinated to try and make a difference locally and and at the state level. I would really love to see people who support the queer community attending school board meetings. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Because that, you know, they're not televised usually and they're very easy to be co-opted by. And they're not very well attended. Or very well attended. That's true, too. Um, and and let your voice be heard on these very important issues in your your school communities. And whether you have students or not, because whether you have kids in the school system or not, all our taxes are paying for the schools. So that in and of itself gives you a right to have a voice. And and see what the candidates for your local school board are, the, what their platform is on these issues. It, it's kind of crazy because, you know, I remember growing up in Sumter County, Florida, which is, which, well, it's a lot bigger now, but when I was a kid, it was like 30,000 people, maybe right. um, had these little school board races and, you know, um, county commissioner races. And it was very small potatoes type stuff. Nothing to scare the horses. No one really, it wasn't really, they weren't really focused on any national issues or hot button, anything. And nowadays, these these races can be knocked down, drag out fights about really serious issues. And so the more people we have who 
value equality and want to see um, equality prevail in their community, the better for the outcomes in the schools and the outcome for the larger community. So connect with those who are whose job it is to track these issues and empower you as a, a regular citizen to make your voice heard on these issues. It can be very overwhelming and daunting, I think, when you're just trying to figure out how can I make a difference? How can I have my voice heard in the din of society? But there are a lot of people who are dedicated to trying to make it as easy as possible for you. So definitely reach out to them. There's a conversation to be had about oversimplifying this approach to activism. On top of reaching out to those policymakers, reaching out to those um, who make the decisions, I, I want to speak from the heart for a moment and say, if you're in a position, whether you're in the queer community or you're just an ally, if you're in a position of privilege, Use your privilege to amplify marginalized voices within our community. Introspect first and work on those in internal biases that you hold, right? And then use your privilege to advocate for our Black trans youth. Use your privilege to have conversations about HIV and AIDS and uh, healthcare access. Use your privilege to talk about intersectionality in the queer community. Stand on that privilege. So it's there's got to be a comprehensive approach to not just changing policy, but changing and reaching hearts too. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, how do we not only make waves for policy change, Rashad, but how, how do we also reach the hearts of those who still harbor hate and misunderstanding? I think the, the best way to do that is just to live your life with integrity. Whether you be yourself a, a queer person or a straight ally, stand on your truth and stand in your truth and the power of your truth. You know, I love to argue. I'm a very disputatious person. I will, you know, I I definitely relish a good argument. No doubt about that. Arguing with people, I think, is usually nine times out of ten completely useless. Sadly, I have to admit it is. that someone who as someone who really loves arguing, uh, it's usually useless. Wait, Your wait, a lobbyist loves arguing? No. <laughs> no absolutely um but i think the the example of your walk and how you you live your life is a much more powerful witness than any words that come out of your mouth so if you are modeling love and charity and openness and concern for people who are not like yourself and living your life with integrity as a queer person, I think that that is the most effective way to change hearts and minds. And we've heard many, many testimonies from people who used to be anti-gay uh, or anti-queer, et cetera, who've said that, you know, I never would have supported same-sex marriage or whatever until I 
heard from my coworker or my, you know, my son or daughter or my brother. I was about to say, or my child. My child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The integrity of that witness is powerful for people. It really is powerful. Obviously, not everyone's going to be persuaded by that, but a lot of people are. We as individuals, we, our sphere of influence is very limited, but the few people that we can influence, I think it's very important that we do what we can to do that. Um, and, and one by one, we can make the world a better place. That's very well said. And the last group of people I want to ask you to speak to, those people that say, you're just shoving it down our throats. You people can't just keep your your pride to yourself. You can't X, Y, and Z, you know, whatever insult you want to insert. What do you say to those people who keep that stance when it comes to our rights? And how do we navigate? Let's say if I'm I'm a, a baby activist, how 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 would I navigate that response? You when you mentioned that scenario, it immediately reminded me of an episode of The Golden Girls, <laughs> where when um, Blanche's brother was gonna marry another man. This show, just to sidebar, The Golden Girls was so prophetic and profound and way beyond its time because the golden Girls was it, so. I mean, it was pro gay it was pro ho it was pro black right. it was exactly i mean it was it was so just groundbreaking in so many respects and did so much i think to move the ball forward on on all these issues so rest in peace girls rest in peace but um where blanche was just struggling to understand why her brother wanted to marry um, another man. And Sophia, who was the old lady, sat her down at the kitchen table and she said, she asked her, well, why did you marry your husband? Blanche said, because I loved him and I wanted to celebrate our love and wanted everybody to know about it. And Sophia said, don't you think your brother wants the same thing with, with his lover? We all want someone to to love us. In the episode, that's what broke the ice and get, allowed Blanche to accept that her brother was going to marry uh, another man. And I feel like at base, that's really what it's all about. It is not about... I mean, I, I don't want to say that queer people aren't different because we are different and that's wonderful. Like our differences are really great. I think that we've really broken the mold on a lot of this stuff in society, but at the end of the day, even in our difference, what we really want is what everybody wants. We want to be accepted for who we are. We don't want stuff that we don't have any control over to hamper our life prospects or our ability to rise and thrive and move through life and society. We want to be able to achieve our dreams and, and reach for the stars and do all the stuff that anybody else would want to do in their lives. And I think I'm, I'm very gay, like super <laughs> gay. I've never had sex with a woman, but that doesn't stop me from being able to understand you know, that men and women who are attracted to each other want to be together. And right. that's great. Just right. because it's not my cup of tea does not mean that 
they're shoving it down my throat every time I see a gay couple holding hands or not a gay couple, a straight couple holding hands, you know, or, or kissing each other or whatever. The energy that you want to receive from other people, just put that energy out to them. Right. It's simple. You don't have to, I don't understand heterosexuality at all. It makes no sense to me. Like why I love women, but why anyone would want to have sex with them? I have no idea. I, <laughs> I don't but, get it either. But that doesn't mean I don't want straight people to have all the happiness and love and joy and peace in the world. Absolutely. And I want the same thing for, for people like me. That's, that's, that's very eloquently said. And that's, that's usually my argument too. Just, we just want to be able to exist in peace. We're not shoving something down your throat, but we're just trying to, to highlight, Hey, we've been beaten the hell up. Mm-hmm. Can we get a break? That's really all it is. That's all it is. That's all it is. And if we did shove it down your throat, you'd probably like it. You closet anyway. <laughs> I secretly feel like that whenever anyone says that particular phrase, like shove it down our throats, that's really what they're thinking. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what they're thinking. Listen, Rashad, I really appreciate your, your perspective. Um, I didn't want to navigate a conversation on number one on, on the political arena without you. Um, But I, I wanted to make sure that, that we included included the right perspective. So I'm glad that you were able to bring that. And I appreciate you setting aside some time, not just for me and the project, but for the greater purpose of the conversation. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And I'm very happy to contribute whatever I can to furthering understanding of the political nature of being queer. Politics is not the most important thing in life. I, as much as I love politics, I always like to stress that there are so many more important things in life, but politics is important and it has a a tremendous impact on every aspect of our lives. And the more people that we can get to who, who hold these values, wanting to see a more compassionate world where everybody's equal to get engaged in the political process, the better will be for our society. If you're out there and you're listening to this conversation, know that this is just the tip of the iceberg. As always, educate yourself. Before you start opening your mouth, before you start speaking, before you start moving, do do some research, educate yourself. It goes beyond what we talked about here. It goes beyond what we've talked about in this series. And like Rashad said, get yourself involved. Reach out. Even if you just start with um, local organizations, you don't have to overwhelm yourself. I'm I'm not telling you to revolutionize a march through the center of your town or, you know, go and stage a die-in at, you know, at Capitol Hill, but become more aware of the language that you're using in your day-to-day conversations. And just start, like Rashad said, by being emulating or better yet, reflecting that light. Start by being the example and make small steps at, toward your journey of being an activist within our community. Yeah. 
As always, if you have any questions, if you want to reach out, if you want to share your experience, our inbox is always open. It's always available. You can also reach out to us at safespacesandfaces at gmail.com. Rashad, is there anywhere that uh, our listeners can find you or interact with you on the social platforms? Yes, I'm on Twitter at Rashad Thomas. Yeah, I call it Twitter because fuck Elon Musk. Twitter. Oh, right. It is X now. <laughs> Whatever. It will always be Twitter, okay? Yes. <laughs> um, even though more aptly X with all the porn that I see on Twitter oh, these gosh, days. But, but um, I will make sure that I, um, I link your Twitter in the episode description. So if you're listening to this, go find the episode description on whatever platform you're listening to. Click that link and give Rashad a follow. Let him know what you uh, thought about his perspective and uh, get involved with the conversation. Come back next week. We are going to have a conversation next week about allyship and what it looks like to be an ally to the different subcultures and subgroups of the queer community. A dear friend of mine, Amanda, is going to join us for that conversation. And uh, wherever you are, remember to love yourself, love one another, and as always, make sure you be the change that you want to see. Thank you for opening your space to Safe Spaces and Faces. We hope that you, too, get involved in the conversation. Remember to like, follow, and share our social media. Tell us your story, share your experience, and together we can make a difference. Until next time, be the change you want to see.